I'm inside King's Dominion at the brand new area, Jungle Expedition. The local species can't get enough of Toombeely, Virginia's first 4D spin coaster. They're also going wild for the spectacular new live show, after which they replenish their strength at the new Outpost Cafe. Uh. Oh my, I've never heard a mating call like that before. Discover a thrilling new coaster and live show inside Jungle Expedition. Right now, get tickets as low as $39.99, only at kingsdominion.com. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. The levels are set. The mics are ready. Testing, testing, one, two, three. So strap yourself in. It's time to go one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Let's go. Good day, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and welcome to One-on-One with Bill Alexander. Great to have you with us today. Um, today is one of those shows I love to research because the, t- the individual that I'm going to be talking to has appeared in Playboy. And you know, I've said this before when I spoke to Deborah Driggs a few months back, but it's interesting to be able to go back and look at those photos. But this one was in the 1963 edition of September um, of that year, and she was the Playboy Playmate of the Month. On the line right now, we have Victoria Valentino. Victoria, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So I was going back and I was, of course, like anybody would that does research for a program like this, you go back and the first thing you do is you look at the photographs. And from what we see in 2021 compared to what we see in 1963, there's a big difference in what was being shown in the magazine at the time. Well, I had more to show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just I just mean it was more I, I don't want to say it was more uh, prudish, but it was more suggestive than actually showing all the detail. Well, yeah, I, I it was it was a little bit more ladylike, shall we there say, Madonna. I think I think my centerfold was the only centerfold in all of Playboy history that looked like it should have been hung in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> so I thought it was really interesting. I was reading an article that you did with uh, the U.S. Sun from December 22nd, 2020. And it says what really got you into this was your husband who was taking photographs of you and submitted them to Playboy. My- yes, yes. Um, I had been trained in New York and Connecticut as a legitimate theater actress and had nine years of classical ballet under my belt. I 
majored musical theater at the American Theater Wing in uh, New York, the, you know, the, the Tony Awards uh, school. And um, all I'd ever wanted to do was be on the Broadway stage and do Shakespeare and do Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff. That was my dream. And um, after I came out to California, I uh, wound up getting kind of taken under the, the wing of this Afro-Cuban cungero who turned out to be a con man. And, uh, but I didn't of course know it. I was a kid straight out of private school in New York and my father was a, an old Disney artist from the old days in, in uh, Disney history. He was a background artist for Fantasia and Pinocchio. Oh, wow. and Bambi. I mean, he was, he was legendary. Uh-huh. We didn't know it at the time. He was just dad, you know? Right. And uh, hunched over the drawing board all the time. And don't touch my elbow. <laughs> so uh, when uh, I was out here, I really kind of got, got uh, well, I was a sitting duck, you know. I was young, I was naive and rebelling against my family and living a, a bohemian coffee house kind of, of life, you know, and plunking guitar and singing protest songs and old folk ballads and stuff like that. So um, I wound up uh, marrying this man and uh, loving his two toddlers. And we had our own son. But prior to that, uh, he and this other photographer friend of ours, they were trying, he will, my husband wanted to become a photographer. And so he and this photographer friend of ours started, uh, you know, reading all the photography magazines and discussing Hasselbloods and, you know, uh, two by two or two by four transparencies and, you know, all of the pros and cons of this and that. And, and, um, and I was their model. Okay. And having an artist for a father who used my mother for a model. And, uh, you know, it was like no big deal to me. And then they started putting their heads together and muttering. And then they would look at me and then they'd go back to muttering amongst themselves. And I kept hearing this word playboy coming up. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I'd never seen a pinup magazine I'd never heard of Playboy. And even when I was accepted as a playmate, I had no idea that it was such a big deal. All oh, I could wow. think of was, oh, my God, I hope my father doesn't ever <laughs> see this because he's <laughs> going to kill me. <laughs> and of course, that's what happened. They did find out. And um, they were, in fact, disinvited to dinner because the brother of the host had seen my centerfold it had just hit the stands and they were so shocked that my parents were disinvited to dinner and they never forgave me and I was disowned for four years okay. and you know probably never forgiven for the rest of their lives until I took my mother to the mansion for after my dad died in I can't remember sometime in the 90s and um, it was a playmate of the year luncheon and 
Um, she, at that point, was wearing a button with my centerfold miniaturized on it, and I introduced her to Hef, and he was the gracious host. He stood up, he walked over to her, and he called her mama, and he said, well, I can see where Victoria got her beauty, and she <laughs> never got over it, so I was redeemed in the end, more or less. So when you when whenever he said that he wanted you to do Playboy, like you said, you didn't know what it was. Were you shocked that they wanted to send out nude photos to you of you to someone to put in a magazine? Well, I, I, I didn't. They never said we want you to do Playboy. You know, I just didn't know what they were doing. I was just posing, thinking okay. that helping my husband's future photography career. I, I just, I just think that's, that's interesting, especially in 1963. Oh, it was very bizarre. It, it, you're 19 years old. Someone says they want to take nude photos of you. And like you said, it's your husband. So you wouldn't think anything of it, but what happened whenever you got the phone call from Playboy saying that, Hey, we're going to put you in a magazine. Well, I, I didn't get the phone call. He fielded everything. And so they did all the negotiations with him. And I was just told when I had to show up at the studio. Okay. And so, at that time, my centerfold, they paid. <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing to even share what they paid in those days. We got $1,000 for the centerfold in 1963. I never saw a penny. I think I got. I think I got a black skirt, a ruffled white blouse, a new pair of flip-flops, and a new bra. <laughs> he spent I mean, the rest of supposedly on rent or whatever. Right. You know? So and the other photographer who took so many of the photographs, a guy named Harry Drinkwater, who uh, many of his iconic photographs that have been uh in Playboy for, for decades were attributed to Mario Casilli and um, Harry never got over that. Mm. And he, he has since died in his late nineties and he was never, and, and I spoke to Mario one time and he said, you know, that photograph of you with the chess set, they say I took it, but I don't remember ever doing that. And I said, that's cause you didn't, it was, it was drink water. Yeah. So you moved out to Hollywood. You wanted to be you wanted to be an actress. Do you feel that Playboy helped or hurt you in that 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 career goal that you had? Well, I wasn't intending to come out to Hollywood intentionally. Um, my grandmother lived here and I was born here. And my parents, um, because I was ditching school a lot in New York, I was dating a, a diplomat from the U who was in this session at the UN. And so I was, I had discovered international politics and I was ditching and going and spending the day at the UN in the fourth committee and the general assembly and the security council and schmoozing with a lot of international uh, delegates. And it was fascinating. And, um, and then I had a terrible um, experience. I was brutally raped in Washington, D.C., twice in one day by oh. two Libyan uh, 
embassy workers, one to cover the other, went up to prevent an international incident. And uh, I went into a downward spiral and I never told anybody except the people in DC who were hosting me and they threw me under the bus. And so my parents thought I was being a bad girl in New York, never asked what had happened and just dragged me home to Connecticut. And I was sick for two weeks. And as soon as I got well, they threw me on a plane out to see grandma who was crippled in West Hollywood living in a bungalow that had been built in the early 1900s by my great great uncle and they thought that would straighten me out but instead I I ran away because I was what I understand now I was PTSDing like crazy mm -hmm. and which is why I wound up becoming kind of a sitting duck for a con man okay so I didn't come out to California because I wanted to be in movies. Okay. I got stuck out here. And um, ultimately, when I was able to um, try acting, being a playmate actually hindered things. This was the 60s. And so um, nobody really wanted to hire me unless I took my top off, which very much depressed me because I was a trained New York actress. Right. And because I've heard that from other people, too, that when they had that, even though it was something to be proud of that you were picked for this, it also was something of a, a, a badge of dishonor because you were you were not using your talents. You were using your assets to be able to, uh, to to make it ahead, which I think is very interesting, which I feel is is totally backwards and it should have never happened that way but again the 1960s are much different than the, the the 2020s where right now if you would do that you probably have all the doors opened up for you well correct and i think the last playmates were paid something in the range of twenty five thousand for the centerfold wow so wow even the the, the cost the price of admission is was a lot higher so they had also a little bit more um financial mobility and publicity and yeah it had been elevated to new heights now do you think um and you said this you, you felt playboy that the moniker hurt you but you told me at the beginning before we did this you actually did a uh a talk show for 12 years where you would interview former playmates about that. Now, do you feel that it eventually ended up helping you or is it still something that you're, I don't want to say running away from, but you're not uh, embracing all the way or has that changed? Well, um, you know, first of all, the end of the 90s, well, somewhere in the middle of the 90s, Playboy um, had its 40th anniversary. And um, they were looking for all the so-called lost playmates to come and be part of the festivities. And I got on the uh, guest list. I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so I at that time, I was working for Kaiser as a, um, a registered nurse home hospice case manager covering South Central L.A., and um, late in life career change. And um, so I 
I got involved and got, we were doing a lot of glamour cons all over the country. And I started the last three years of the nineties. I started um, publishing a fanzine called Centerfold oh, okay. Sweetheart and, and uh, wrote all my articles and, and did feature articles on the playmates based on um, the real woman under the skin image. So the end of the 90s, that magazine kind of got subverted because I, I did a, a Playmate Revisited layout in 98 when I was 54 and dating myself but what the hell you know <laughs> do the numbers you know it doesn't matter and so um so they had promised me um a month before my layout hit the stands in 98 that they would start a PR campaign and they were um publicizing it as um playmate turned publisher and for some reason, they seemed to think that my fanzine was competition. And so just about the time they were supposed to start the um, PR campaign, I got a, an agreement in the mail from Playboy, Playmate Promo, saying, congratulations, we've given you, you've been given the, the, the use of all of the logos and trademarks. Just sign this and we will appoint uh, a point person to approve each one of your magazines before it's published. And I looked at that. Well, I had had a lot of experience by then seeing how the corporation absorbed the Playmates. We were at right. that time not allowed yet to use our title. We couldn't say I'm Miss September 1963 publicly, only within tight Playboy circles. And uh, Terry Wells actually went to court and won us the right so that we, like Miss America or Miss Universe or Miss World, could use our titles as we should. Right. And, um, and so... As a result of that, um, you know, there was a, a sort of a paradigm shift. Um, but at that point, I, I basically wrote them back. I, you know, I would avoid signing the agreement because I was going, this is my magazine. You know, this is my thing. It was my dining right. room table, Kinko's thing, you know, <laughs> and everybody loved it. I had about 200 and 20 paid subscribers and they were all dyed in the wool old collectors, you know, and right. I knew them all from the glamour cons. And so it was like a fun thing to do. And I wasn't planning on trying to compete with playboy um, hardly. And um, so every time I would call uh, the, the, you know, Cindy Rakowitz, who is the head of Playmate Promo at the time, they'd put me on hold and Playboy Legal would intercept the call. And they say, don't you have an agreement you're supposed to sign? And I kept thinking about it. And I say, oh, yeah, it wasn't mm, threw it on the pile. You know, <laughs> let me go see if I can I kept stalling, stalling, trying right. to decide how I was deal with it. So, um Cindy and I turned out we had the same wedding anniversary 
And so I finally uh, sent her an FU very much gracious letter and said, thank you so much, darling. Um, but actually, Hef already gave me use of the trademarks and logos as long as I posted the little trademark notices at the bottom of each page, right. which I do. Uh -huh. And I had his letter giving me permission and everything, which I faxed to them. And, um, you know, and just said, thank you. I, you know, I really have my own logo, which I had designed, which was a heart with ears. And um, I didn't hear from them, didn't hear from them. And then finally, um, it was almost time for my layout to hit the stands. And I still hadn't heard from them about a play, a promo one way or the other. So I said, um, let me, let me give them a call. Just, I already had it figured out, but I thought, let me just call and hear it from their mouths. Right. And Bill Harley answered and said, um, oh, well, you know, um, gee, Jay Leno wasn't interested and, so-and-so bill maher wasn't interested and so-and-so wasn't interested in interviewing you and uh, i said oh really and he said yeah he said some people around here would would ask who they'd have to sleep with so i said oh really so very sarcastically with venom dripping from my fangs i said who do i have to sleep with <laughs> And he went, you know, nervous laugh and, right. you know, and blew it off. And I said, well, gee, Bill, really nice. Nice talking to you. Say hello to your wife for me. Uh -huh. And I hung up. Within the week, Keith Hefner called me and invited me up to the mansion for a romantic candlelight dinner. Okay. Now, Keith and I had dated for an eye blink back in 1965. Um, I think probably everybody dated him for an eye blink in 65. And um, so I just said to him, well, darling, I said, really, I, I, I didn't think that uh, you dated anybody that wasn't at least six feet tall and brown anymore. And um, so he kind of went, well, yeah, yeah. And um, I knew that that he had a daughter who is developmentally delayed in uh -huh. a, a board and care kind of place near uh -huh. where I live time. And I knew he visited her and went to lunch with her every Friday. And so I just said, well, next time you come up, you know, to my neighborhood, I said, give me a call and we'll have lunch in a cafe. And so he, I think, you know, he, he wound up taking that to the next level and then said, well, you know, if you came up, you know, it's Monday night poker night with the boy, with the guys, and it's whores night out. Hmm. And I immediately realized if I wanted my PR campaign, I was going to have to go to the mansion and run the gauntlet. Yeah, I well, got you. Honestly, I'm too damn old for that. Uh, to even consider and I already knew that game and I just wasn't going for it and I went well have a wonderful night mm -hmm. so 
So I wound up not having, so in, in any case, my point was after that whole little scenario, my layout hit the stands, then 99 comes up, 2000, I'm getting a divorce. I moved here. I gave up my magazine. Right. Bob started, you know, winding down his glamour cons. And um, I just segued into doing a talk show. And the talk show, I had a few old playmates, you know, interview, interviewing a few of the older playmates. Mm -hmm. But after a while, it got to the point where it was like, you know, you start running out of interesting things to ask. You know, it's like, why did you want to be a playmate? What was it right. like? Did you sleep with her? So the, the, what you just told me, so did that happen with pretty much everybody during those, the years that the, that the magazine was on top of the rack and it, and it was so popular that they had to run through the so-called gauntlet to be able to get the promotion necessary to sell the magazine? Well, there was an awful lot of stuff happening like that. Um, any playmate who wound up being entrepreneurial and trying to use her status to create a business or make right. money out of her own celebrity, they would absorb her into the corporation with great praise, give her the use of the, the trademarks and logos, and then once they had her in, then they would say, oh, but, you know, your project is in conflict with us. So let us buy it from you. And so they would buy it for a really cheap amount of money, you know, really cheap. And then they would fire the, the playmate. And so then she would be out of her business and fired and kind of kicked to the curb. And that happened with Charlotte Kemp. She was the first one who was given the logos and she had the Playboy running team and they supported her for the first year. And then afterwards, she had to do everything and, you know, no, no further support. Uh, Bonnie Large had um, she had a, a put up a website and I can't remember the name of it. It was Centerfold something or another and had us all on so that we could sell our autograph photos directly to the fans because right. up until the point, everything had to go through Playmate promotions. They would open all of our mail and we would only get mail delivery once a month with opened envelopes. So we never knew where we getting the money, you know, because oh, interesting. sending um, cash. Because I'm, I'm looking at this and, and you're telling me what was going on then. And then you have a playmate that, that happened in the 90s, Jenny McCarthy, who posed and then all of a sudden became, had her own TV career and had her own everything else. Was she under that same type of umbrella or was that when they were starting to lose their grip on the playmates? Well, I think it was when they were beginning to lose their grip but don't forget she was a much younger you know she was in a, a later period of time we were the old ones right that's what i'm asking if yeah. there was a transition from that 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 tight um vault type situation to then later on when they were finally realizing they were opening the doors because they were losing control of who they had well yeah and i think also the younger girls were a whole lot more savvy okay you know they were hipper to the scene what they were, you know, what, what, 
what stormy waters they had to navigate and they knew how to do it. A lot of us were, you know, coming from a different era and a different uh, perspective, I guess. And, and um, everybody had their own issues. That's all I can tell you. Do you want to say McCarthy that McCarthy is, you know, she's an anomaly anyway. <laughs> I mean, Jen, you know, she kicks ass. <laughs> yeah. So, so are you saying that the ones, the earlier ones were a little bit more naive because they didn't understand the power the magazine had? Well, I think, I think a lot of the older playmates, we still initially had this idea that playboy supported us and loved okay. us and they were going to do our the best for us and it really was a sorority and um didn't really understand or want to believe the backstory okay i that, i got you that makes a lot of sense so how did you go from playboy into going into um hospice respiratory nurse <laughs> I mean, how do you go from there to there? I mean, I go heavy breathing, maybe, but I don't know. Well, um, being a nurse wasn't anything I'd ever planned on becoming. Okay. Uh, believe me. And um, when 1969 came along and I was pretty much trying to make my way, I had opened the first Playboy Club on the um, West Coast, uh, New Year's Eve, 64. And I had just come out of a very bad situation with my first husband. He had trafficked me after I became a playmate for three months, sold me to mega stars, to the highest bidder because I had that little bit of celebrity. That's where my celebrity became important in okay. terms of, of his career, not mine. And I uh, wound up after three months becoming so sick, he starved me and um, beat me. I'm still dealing to this day at almost 79 with physical injuries uh, that were perpetrated at that time. Mm -hmm. And when I managed to escape, my parents had then at that point moved from Connecticut out and my father had gone back to Disney and, um, and was a member of the Motion Picture Academy. And, you know, and, and so um, they helped me uh, <laughs> in kind of a roundabout way escape from, from that situation, but it caused an awful lot of trauma um, that I won't get into right now. Um, but I, um, spent several years just trying to recover and find my footing okay. and try, you know, I became a screen actors guild member trying to make it doing TV or whatever I could, you know, a commercial here, a man from uncle there in a little spot and, you know, just whatever I could. And I had at that point, a little boy who was uh, racially mixed and so this was all around the Civil Rights Act and Vietnam and the Summer of Love. You know, that mm -hmm. was that period of time that <clears throat> I was navigating through alone without much support from anybody and uh, didn't even know how to get a real job. 
you know, all I knew how to do at that point was sing, <clears throat> sing, dance, look pretty in front of the camera, you know, and sling drinks, <laughs> do okay. the bunny dip, you know, I <laughs> uh, didn't even know how to get a, a checking account or get my shoes fixed, you know, so, um, it, you know, it was a difficult time. So while I was working one day on the set of a B movie, I was picking a little guitar, I, which I had learned from Hoyt Axton. I don't know if you remember Hoyt. Yes. He, uh, mm -hmm. Well, I had before I met my first husband, I was his old lady, so to speak. We had traveled and been on the road together and he taught me guitar. And was this I used to write poetry. Was this when you were part of the, uh, the folk group? Well, I, I never was part of a folk group. Okay. I was just traveling. I was just his girlfriend and we were traveling. Um, he was with, uh, <clears throat> at the Troubadour. <coughs> Excuse me, I need a sip of water. <coughs> Maybe that'll help. <laughs> Anyway, he, um, he was at the Troubadour and he was um, going on the road. And so I, I traveled with him. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> so we went to uh, the Drinking Gourd in San Francisco. We went to uh, Denver to the Green Spider. We went to Grogan Saloon in Salt Lake. And um, then I came back and we broke up and he was pissed off at me for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I um, wound up um, learning how to write songs and pick a little guitar. Oh, okay. Thanks to him. And um, so I was on the set of a, uh, uh, of some awful movie that I was flashing my boobs for and um, picking a little guitar in between takes. And one of the actors said, hey, I know an agent who's looking for talent for this guy who's a producer at Capitol Records. Are you interested? I said, you bet. And so I went and uh, they sent me over to Capitol and the producer was a guy named Vic Briggs, who was the lead guitar for the animals. Remember mm -hmm. Eric Burden's yes. The Animals? Yes. Well, Vic Briggs was uh, at that time producing uh, for, for Capitol. So I sat down in his office and picked a little guitar, sang a couple of my songs. He said, you want to make an album? And I said, sure. And so um, I wound up... Um, getting signed and uh my audition piece was an old donovan song called sunny gooch street and um you know you do you remember sunny gooch street yes i'm actually an oldies dj on the side so yeah i'm familiar you, with all I, this what's that? i'm an oldies dj on the side so i'm familiar with all of this oh yeah i i loved it and my uh, then boyfriend at the time played guitar behind me He's since passed away, but he, he was a guy named uh, Dick D'Augustine. And um, he apparently, I only recently learned stuff about him since he died that I didn't know at the time because I was just too in love. To <laughs> <laughs> but he um, apparently 
was a singer, dancer, amazing guitarist, and uh, had cut a couple of 45s and stuff. And um, I uh, was surprised to learn all this stuff after he died, but he was an amazing guitarist. And we, we even performed uh, at the USO chorus, uh, USO, you know, in, uh, at the Hollywood mm-hmm. canteen, they didn't invite me back because I was playing anti-war songs. Oh, well, yeah, that would do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in those days, I was pretty much of a rebel. <laughs> so uh, still am in my own way. And, uh, so he uh, played for my audition and um, it was great. And so I got um, a music attorney, a guy named uh, Martin Cohen, Mutt Cohen, and his uh, brother was the personal manager and they, they together uh, handled Frank Zappa, Linda Ronstadt and the Cow Sills and me. Okay. And, um, so my son wound up having um, an audition for a McDonald's commercial on Friday. He drowned the next day in my music oh. attorney's pool. And um, I went off the deep end. And then a few weeks later, Bill Cosby drugged, kidnapped and raped me. And that was the last straw. And I walked away from Los Angeles. I walked away from my family who were not dreadfully supportive anyway. Mm -hmm. And I just threw everything I could, my son's dog, my guitar case and whatever I couldn't stuff in my mother's garage and hit the road. And um, so through a series of, of travels and various events, I, I wound up being gone for 12 years. And uh, while I was gone, I had a farm in Oregon, uh, dairy goats. <laughs> and um, I got a part-time job in a nursing home and uh, to get some extra grain money for my herd and wound up uh, learning some nursing skills and became a certified nursing assistant not planning on becoming a registered nurse. But then eventually I wound up uh, moving back to California. It was sort of time. My father had had a heart attack and my little girls were adopting everybody else's grandparents. I had two little daughters mm-hmm. by then. And, um, and I thought it was time that they know their own grandparents and for their grandparents to know them. So I moved back and, um, the relationship, my children's father at that time, you know, everything kind of fell apart. And Glendale College was down the street from my parents' house. And I thought I would go down there and see about chiropractic and become a chiropractor. And they talked me into this quick two-year RN program, which turned out to be not so quick. And it was like boot camp. And if I had known what I was getting into in the beginning, I probably would never have done it. But I graduated <laughs> with honors at 42. Wow. And I worked for two years in uh, pulmonary medical ICU and um, then got involved with a doctor. And uh, we all moved in together and eventually married. And um, 
I became a home hospice case manager for Kaiser Permanente and covered South Central LA and um, just started working with the AIDS population mm -hmm. and um, doing home infusions for the uh, people who got, by luck of the draw, the um, central uh, IV central line um, antifungals which was a horrible infusion. It was a terrible medication. And the FDA was um, doing uh, tests for fluconazole um, and, you know, as a pill so that they didn't have to go through these five-hour infusions of this horrendous antifungal IV medication. So I got all the guys who were on the IV medication. Mm -hmm. So I would go out into the home and hang out with them. And they loved me because I wasn't the regular run of the mill RN. And they were all kind of showbiz people. And I was a showbiz person. So they didn't feel patronized or isolated or rejected. And I was very involved at that time with the AIDS population and that movement. And I really felt I was, uh, you know, called to do that work. And I also took every near drown case I could get because I needed to make peace with my own child mm -hmm. drowning. So, um, you know, it was, it was a very important thing for me to do, but I, I always kept my foot in show business too. So <laughs> your, your story is amazing. Have you ever thought about writing a book? I mean, really, this, what you have told me, I mean, is just, I'm, I'm hanging on every word that you say. This is just like, I would have never expected this from you. I mean, I knew briefly about the whole Bill Cosby situation, but everything from the beginning to that to then afterwards, I would have never known unless you would have told me. This just is a, a, an amazing story. That you've gone through oh, so that, up and down so that, many roller coasters, it's amazing that you you're out at the other end. Well, I've often wondered why I'm still standing, and I I don't know whether it's uh, you know just being the descendant of a lot of pioneer women who you know <laughs> just throw their shoulders back, chin up, and get on with it. Right. You know. But, um, but hearing that you were a goat farm or a dairy goat farmer, I would have never anticipated that <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I used to be able, I don't think, I don't know if I could do it now. I probably could, but I used to uh, be able to throw goats and sit on their shoulders and trim hooves and milk. And oh, wow. I had five good milkers and I delivered the babies and, uh, and we had a farmhouse that only had wood heat. So I chopped a lot of wood too. So yeah. when you were, when and you I were on my last child. Wow. So when you were, farm. so thinking about this so what year was this that you had the dairy the, the goat dairy farm what years uh the last half of the 70s okay so 1963 you're in a men's magazine in the end of the 70s you're a goat farmer i mean i don't think anybody <laughs> could have written that story for a movie let alone actually happening well you know the crazy thing was that when i, I when i left l.a you know, I wound up in Topanga Canyon because uh, my capital producer, he and his wife, who was an astrologer, um, 
they lived out in Topanga Canyon, which is sort of a, it was a place where a lot of uh, artists and, you know, Cosby Stills and Nash and everybody yeah. lived out there. And Linda Ronstadt lived out there. Dean Stockwell lived out there. A lot of, you know, everybody was out there. And I wound up going out and uh, I wound up for almost a year living in a dirt floored garage with per my Persian rugs thrown on the dirt and India prints hanging. Uh, it was quite an adventure. And, um, but I was, you know, I was uh, kind of crazy at that time. And I met another songwriter who um, was out from Louisiana, Cajun guy, and he was pretty destroyed too. So we connected on, on the basis of our insanity. And um, at the end of that year, um, <laughs> at the end of that year, we were, um, kind of ping-ponging back and forth, you know, he, uh, mm -hmm. whether I wanted him in my life or not. And anyway, um, <laughs> I was running out of my advance money for capital because it just, everything happened. It just destroyed. I, I lost my music right. and um, I couldn't sing and never wound up recording the album which is something I need to do before I die. That's on my list, you know, uh, not for capital though. <laughs> Just yeah. Right. For myself. Yeah. And uh, so I, so one of the gals in the Canyon said, well, I can get you a job where I'm working. I'm dancing in this bar in Venice beach. And I thought, okay, you know, so I went out there two days on the job and I thought, I can't believe this. I am dancing topless in a sleazy bar in a, a wasted beach town. I've lost my son. I've lost my recording contract with Capital. You know, what? why am I even here? Mm -hmm. and, all, and I'm sitting in the dressing room because the manager of the bar was pissed off at me because I wouldn't get down on my belly and crawl across the stage and waggle my butt. And I said, I'm not doing it. And I was sitting in the dressing room crying. And all of a sudden out of the window of the dressing room, I hear these footsteps running up and down the alley. And I hear this voice going, Vicky, Vicky Blue, Sha, I love you. I'm leaving for New Orleans in 10 minutes. You going? And I thought, nothing to lose. Right. So we hit the road, discovered he was a pretty crazy alcoholic, but he was the son of a Cajun congressman, a guy who had been the chairman of the House of Un-American Activities under Lyndon Johnson, and they were okay. all bridge partners and drinking buddies. Okay. So... I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be arriving in this place, you know, in one of these antebellum mansions or something and having to clean up my act. And uh, so he called her, his mother from, uh, who is actually his great aunt, his great aunt and great uncle, but they had taken him and raised him from his own biological mother, who were the, the nieces and nephews. I mean, this is Tennessee Williams straight, you know, and on, on the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he had lived, you know, in the next town, 
with his great aunt and great uncle as his adoptive parents. Uh But every summer would go out and spend the summer with his siblings and his biological parents. And uh, but he had been kicked out of every prep school in D.C., rolled every sports car they'd ever. You know, he was always rebelling. And his father, uncle, um, always wanted him to go into politics become an attorney and and he wanted to be a musician so Mm -hmm. it didn't sit right with them and um so he was sort of the black sheep of the family as a result so he calls his mother stepmother on his way and say and he said my mom he said i am bringing my lady home and she said can't bring none of your bitches here So we wound up living in a camper in his biological mother's front yard for the first six months. Wow. (laughs) And then found an old crawfish cleaning shack on the bayou that we bought for 2,500 bucks, fixed it up, made it a nice little lovely home, actually. And I had our first daughter there. Uh And then his alcoholism got too crazy for me and I hit the road and came back to L.A and decided I wasn't ready for my family, for this lifestyle, or my son's grave loomed still. So I moved up to Oregon and immediately registered for college and uh, did two years of art history, basic design, graphic arts, ceramics, and had a wonderful time. And then the farm became available and I wanted to raise my kid on on a farm. So I just, you know, it was 20 minutes south of Portland, 22 acres, a barn specifically built for goats. I mean, it was beautiful. It was three orchards. It Mm -hmm. was just idyllic. It was it was wonderful. So I started collecting goats. (laughs) So you, you mentioned your two daughters and I guess eventually they found out what you did for Playboy. Did you have to frame that in a way? to make them accept what you did? Because I can imagine a kid seeing their mother doing that in another lifetime would be very, I don't know. I don't want to use the word embarrassed, but would be embarrassed or apprehensive about it. Did you have to frame it in a way so they understood? You know, I, I can't remember when I told them. I don't know. I think it was something they just sort of always knew. Okay. Uh, things that 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 I had to tell them that were really harsh were um, that I had been trafficked. Okay. Of course, I only learned to frame it in a certain way now that it's palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was probably harsher for them. But I told them when they were probably too young because I was, I was afraid that somehow or another, they wouldn't be prepared for the harsh realities of life. And I didn't want anything bad to happen to them. And I wanted to maintain open communication and not have any secrets. Because I thought, well, if they grow up, and they find out that I've been keeping all this from them, they're going to feel betrayed. And they will feel um, that they couldn't trust me. So I told them too much too young. And of course, my youngest daughter, 
My oldest daughter's fine with it. She's very grounded because her toddler years were spent on the farm. Right. You know, she helped me deliver baby goats. She saw rutting and kidding season. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we went through all of those changes and, you know, she knew what it was to wring a chicken's neck and help, you know, or skin something and tan a hide and, you know, and put stuff up. I mean, she, she knew the earthy side of life, you know, but my, my youngest daughter uh, was two and a half when we moved back to California and she didn't have the same grounding. And she has felt that she was exposed to too much, uh, too young. Okay. You know, she, she felt, um, that I, I shouldn't have told her to, you know, at the age that I did. Right. And I, how old she was, maybe eight, nine or something. Um, but, you know, being a parent is, is uh, pretty tricky anyway. You're always walking on eggshells. You never know. Um, you, you know, we do things from the best intentions and then, uh, it, it implodes inevitably, you know, so you just have to go with your heart and go with faith and try to be true to yourself and, and hope everything works out. <laughs> if it doesn't, oh, well, you know, what can you do? Victoria, this has been fascinating. I'm sure we could go at least another hour because I'm sure you have more stories. But unfortunately, I only have an hour. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking time to join me today. I would love to have you back on the program again, especially if you get the podcast up and running. And um, it was a pleasure. It really was. I really enjoyed myself today. Well, thank you. And I do, by the way, have a book. I'm just looking for a publisher and a, okay. a good editor right now. It's called Dirty Diamonds and the Repurposed Life of a playboy icon and Cosby survivor. Gotcha. That's, that's a good title. I like that. Well, Victoria, thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining us today and you have a great day. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. A big thank you goes out to Victoria Valentino for joining me today. What a pleasure to have her on the program. Can't wait to have her back again. Next time she comes back, we're going to talk about her activism for women's rights in the United States. Not only that, we're also going to be talking about her dealings with Bill Cosby, since she is a Cosby survivor. So can't wait to have her back on the program and can't wait to have you join me again here on One on One with Bill Alexander. You guys have a great day. We'll talk to you next time.